the Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande. I'm Pamela Morales, the Communications Officer for the Museum of South Texas History. It's only been a couple of episodes so far this season, but I hope you've enjoyed learning about political families in the Rio Grande Valley. It's interesting to hear the political dynamics and its impact on families and communities. In this episode, I spoke with the sons of Alfonso Al Ramirez, the first Hispanic mayor of Edinburgh. He ran for mayor in the 1960s, so most of the stories told by the Ramirez brothers are about overcoming stereotypes. What do I mean by that? Let's take a listen. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande. I'm Pamela Morales, and I'm here with the Ramirez brothers, so I'm going to ask for their names and uh, how old they are, if they don't mind telling me. Yes, uh, Robert Ramirez, and I'll be 70 in September. Daniel Ramirez, I'm 61 years old. Stephen Ramirez, I'm 67, almost 68. David Ramirez, I'll be 74 next month. So I brought in the Ramirez brothers because they are all sons of the first native Edinburgh-born and Hispanic mayor of Edinburgh, which I think is a very interesting thing because um, he was elected mayor in the 1960s. So we're going to really talk about, you know, his political life and how that has affected the sons. Another thing about their father, whose name is commonly known as Al Ramirez, also was involved in education, and he was, I believe, also in the military, in the army. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but mostly about his political life. Well, first off, if each brother could sort of describe their version or their perspective of what it was like growing up with a mayor. My experience, this is Stephen, my experience was that the best part of it was being able to go to go to the movies for free. Something I never heard about. You? Uh, the only experience I had, I was in, in grade school. Uh, everyone made fun of me, and because my dad was mayor, and you know, they thought, oh yeah, you're, you know, I don't know, you're. I guess you're telling me how privileged I was. You know, I I I was in junior high. By then, I was very much involved in baseball, and it was um, something I loved to do, but it was also, I mean, I just naturally gravitated toward, towards it because it was outside the house. So I stayed away from the house quite a bit, and I was, in a way, very disconnected from the fact that he was running for mayor. I, you know, we didn't have home conversations about it. There was no discussion about it. You know, I went and played baseball until it got dark. And so it was not really something that was central to my life in a way, even though it was my father, who, and we lived in the same house together. David, do you have anything to say? This is going to sound like an oxymoron, but I was barely aware that he was running, and then I was not. All of the things that people said 
for years later. Yeah, I knew he was running, but he never told us. Had he said, you know, if I win, I'm going to be the first Mexican-American at Edinburgh, I don't know that it would have meant anything to me. Probably not. But I remember bits and pieces like his father told him, there's no way you're going to win. And then some of the white Anglo men told him that Edinburgh is not ready for a Mexican mayor. And again, I wasn't really aware of it because he never, this is going to sound like I'm complaining and I'm not, I'm just telling you the truth, what really happened. Our father hardly ever talked to us, you know. I mean, there was no conversation going on, like, what you do today, what you learn in school, nothing like that. Either. So, yes, I knew he was running, and yet at the same time, I didn't because I it didn't mean anything to me. It sounds like he maybe was a man of a few words, but, in you know, even as you mentioned, he didn't really talk about it. But was there a time when you realized that him becoming the first Hispanic mayor of Edinburgh, when did you realize that was a big deal? I don't know that I ever heard that mentioned. Uh, I mean, really. I was a, I think I was a junior in high school when he when he ran and when he won. The night when he won, I didn't know anything about it. The next morning, my biology teacher said, congratulations, your dad won. And I thought, mm, okay, yeah. So what, you know, I mean, I, and I do remember some strange things that happened. We, he would get phone calls and from parents saying, well, you're the mayor and my daughter has to walk a block to the school bus. So what are you going to do about it? You know, that kind of thing. Like I said, I was aware of it and not aware of it, if that makes sense. I guess maybe later on in life, did you... You know, when you're growing up, you kind of think, oh, my parents aren't cool. Like, they don't know anything. But then when you get older, you start to sort of appreciate some of the things that they did um, at home and maybe outside the home. So did that... That might might be one of the questions you're going to ask. What did he do that I thought was meaningful? I guess the first thing was he introduced bilingual education to elementary schools. He and... uh, Carol Perkins and other people, you know, they used to make film strips and videos and I don't know what, and he he would deliver them to the school. The other thing, and it's not related to that, that that he did, and this was toward the end of his life, the Rear Grande Valley Orchestra had had a Polish conductor that was from Chicago. And I don't know if you know this, but in McCook, there were a bunch, probably 10 or 15 families that immigrated in 1925 from, I think it's in Panama Maria, and they were all Polish, and they spoke Polish at home like the Mexican-Americans speak Spanish at home. And so what he did was he got some school buses and went out there to see if they were interested in going to the first concert. Wow. Uh, yeah, one of the things that, as I said, I was I was unaware. I don't know about you. I want to find out from Stephen, like, were you aware that there was a campaign going on and were you involved in any way? Yes, I, I, I did campaigning. I did door-to-door campaigning. I was just telling Danny, a couple of blocks up the street from where we lived, I knocked on the door and a lady came to the door and said, I'll never vote for him. And I thought, okay, <laughs> what are you supposed to say? But uh, most people wanted to vote for him. And I was I was playing baseball. I mean, that's all I knew about. So at one time, I remember he stopped me at the front door 
I was in junior high. One of my classmates, who was in all of my classes, was Ed Edinburgh attorney Gary Henriksen. So Gary's father was the incumbent mayor. And uh, I mean, we didn't talk about, and we were in scouts together for a while, but it wasn't, you know, politics was not an item that was being discussed and Gary didn't play baseball, so we didn't even talk that much at all. But my dad stopped me once at the front door and just kind of caught me up short and said, well, you are gonna support me, aren't you? And I, and I, was, I was like, I was like, support you? I was, you know, I couldn't even, I didn't even know what to say. I mean, I was like, this topic does not have to do with baseball, so I don't know what you're talking about. But it, you see, and the other thing is, even though I lived in the same house, I didn't know Stephen was out campaigning. This is one of the reasons I, I didn't either. I, I'm glad that we're either. here to have this conversation. I did want to say that one of the, the, the genesis in part for how he decided to run for mayor was when he was working for the school, the school district, and we lived out west of town on Monmac Road in a house that's still there, as a matter of fact. And so he got a visit from one of the power brokers in town, and they asked him what he would think about running for city commission. And apparently there was a kind of a gentleman's agreement they would have at least one Mexican-American on the city commission so that it, things would at least look a little okay with respect to representation of, peop of the people by the people. So they uh, said, Al, you know, we come to see you and see what you would think about running for office of a, for city commission. And he said, I don't know anything about that. I don't have any money. I'm not a political person. I work for the school district. And they said, well, don't worry about that. If you say yes, you know, you, you'll basically you'll get elected. What goes along with that is you, you will also vote the way we want you to vote. So he politely told the guy it was time to leave. So, but then I guess a couple of years later, he and some of his friends were coming back from the 100th anniversary maybe of the Battle of Puebla or the 150th, which, whatever it was. It would have been in the late 50s, early 60s. And that's when he proposed to them, well, what do you guys think about running for office? So that's how he decided, I guess, that. And he was a very modern campaigner in a way. He got a Tide Chemical Company, which was on Schoenier Street, had a computer, and he, they got the voting rolls and they computerized all the cards of all the people who had voted in, previous, in a previous election so they knew which houses had more than one vote. And he, he would go door to door, first of all, at the houses with the most votes. And it was a very, a very uh, I guess, diligently run and, and scientifically run campaign. So. Again, all of this you find out later when I no longer played baseball. Right. Yeah, here's, here's, here's another aside about his running. This is probably way before your time, but there was only one men's store down on, on the square. Anyway, he told our dad that, look, I can't publicly support you because all the Anglos in town, they won't buy clothes from me and shoes from me. But he gave him a couple of rolls of stamps. He said, I can help you in this way, but I cannot, I cannot say, yes, I'm for you uh, publicly. Wow. And, and back to what Robert said about them offering the city council or, or, or county commissioner, they just wanted a token make on them so they can say, well, look, you know, we have one here. Our father was very, very smart, and he realized, uh, you know, what they were up to. He probably told him politely, you know what, you can take that and shove it. How long was he mayor? 
He was mayor for two terms, four, four years, yeah. I guess. It 63 was. to yeah. 67. Yeah. And he won the second time by two to one margin. So he must have been doing something right. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I'll tell you one more thing about, about his mayor. The first city council meeting they had, they had a bar, you know, with a ton of beer and whiskey and wine, and everybody got steaks. And he asked, well, who's paying for this? He said, they said, well, the city is. He said, well, he said, this is the last time you're going to do this at city's expense. I'm sure it pissed off a lot of those guys, but he believed in doing the right thing, you know, no matter what the consequences were. So then what is one thing that your father did that, makes y'all proud okay here here's one thing there was a, a famous basketball player that played for the broncos lucius jackson was his name and back then the swim you know the one swim pool that edinburgh had was in south park and blacks could not go african americans could not go swim there and there was a little i don't know six seven eight year old girl that wanted to go swimming and they said no you can't come in here so what he did was he got loose to Jackson. He was like seven feet tall. So he went out there to the swim pool and said that this little girl wants to come in and swim. And I said, okay, sure. It was built with federal funds, so discrimination yeah. was illegal. But right. when, when he asked about it, they said, well, go, you got to go talk to the parks director, Johnny Economides. And so he went and talked to the parks director, and then, of course, Johnny said, well, you got to go talk to somebody else. And they were, they were all enforcing this discrimination. De facto. Yeah, against illegal discrimination, but not owning up to it. And so they, they eventually have integrated the pool. And, you know, that was a big, that was an important day. And as a matter of fact, the black community in Edinburgh, small as it was, was a community that he went and asked for their support the first time he ran. And so... No, he, actually, he threatened federal intervention if they didn't let the black kids into the swimming pool and that's when they caved yeah he, t he told me that that he that he bluffed them and he said i've got two lawyers with the aclu ready to fly in here from new york city and file suit against edinburgh <laughs> if you don't if you don't uh, obey the law so he bluffed them into obeying the law <laughs> yeah wow <clears throat> what were the two things that you had no, that was that was one of them. The second one was when he met the Mellon Strikers in Edinburgh. They had marched from San Juan from Rio Grande City. Well, from Rio Grande City, and and but they were they were in San Juan, and there were no mayors in any of the towns that they passed through that would that would welcome them or even see them. And he had been in a in a wreck where he. Dislocated his broke his, hip. broke his hip and had 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 surgeries in a cast from his chest to his toenails, <laughs> and they put him on a litter, put him in the back of our pickup truck and drove him out to meet these marchers, and it was I was there, I was there. Eugene Nelson was one of the he was sent from California by Cesar Chavez to to work with these guys, and. Uh, that was that was had a big impact on the marchers and on everybody that was there, and unfortunately we have no pictures of that. I just did you have anything? Yeah, I remember. I remember when when he had broken. He was in that accident and had 
and he was in a cast. We put him in the back of the, of the pickup that we had, and we drove around town, and he was like waving, to, you know, saying hello to everybody and getting support from everyone. Next question, I'm kind of thinking maybe Stephen should answer. Did his politics affect your personal life and your view of the Valley and the world? And I'm asking Stephen because he mentioned that he campaigned for Dad. So I'm kind of curious. I know that when he was mayor, the city got a new police chief. And uh, they worked together closely. Chief Gonzalez was his name the first uh, first police chief trained by the FBI. I had, like I was telling you earlier about Edinburgh being a sleepy little town, the chief of police before Chief Gonzalez. At any rate, this- Do you remember his name? Sanderson. Sanderson. No, no, Leroy Easton. Leroy Easton. And uh, his son was a friend of mine, and I used to go to every kind of crime scene available because that chief would go to everywhere. This new chief was trained by the FBI. It brought my understanding of how important city police, how, how important city government was. And because before it just seemed like sleepy little town, you know, and all of a sudden we came into the real world. This story kind of relates to your earlier question about being proud and a real simple, direct, way of doing the right thing. Because when he went to these houses that I told you about, where there would be multiple voters, he would ask them, well, do you know anybody down at City Hall? Do you know who the mayor is? Or any of the city commissioners? And they, of course, many of them had no idea. And he said, well, don't you think it'd be nice if you ever needed anything at City Hall, you would know somebody that you could call? And of course, the answer would be yes. And then he would say, well, how convenient. You know, I'm running for office and, and give them a card. So anyway, he gets a phone call at the house from a father who says, uh, you know, my son's been arrested and they're holding him down at the city jail and the father didn't know why. So my dad goes down to the city jail to find out what's going on and gets the police chief, who at that time was who? Leroy Easton. Leroy Easton. Uh, the chief had arrested this young man because, well, the, the chief actually said to my dad, well, he, he was a witness to a crime. There was a bar fight or something happened, and this young man was a witness. So they put him in jail as a witness to hold on to him so that he could testify. And my, Of course, my dad was dumbfounded. You know, you can't arrest people who are witnesses to a crime. Don't, you know, he said, just like he would tell us, don't do that again, you know. So... Uh, this is the kind of thing, like ch making fundamental changes in, in simp what you might say is a simple way, but in a very important way that affected the, the uh, enforcement of justice and the application of justice in the city. So there, there were, I'm sure, many, many examples of that, like when they wanted to change the uh, country club. Was it Country yeah, Club Drive? Country Club Drive. They wanted to change it to name it after a, a Medal of Honor winner, Freddie Gonzalez. And, Freddie Gonzalez. And people were all upset that their property values were going to go down if they changed the name of the street <laughs> to somebody that had a Z in their last name. So, you know, and I don't remember if he was mayor at the time or if he just went before the city commission. You might know that better. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, 
putting each of the commissioners on the spot, you know, are you, are you opposing that? I mean, in other words, uh, facing people and holding them accountable in important ways, however small. I don't think he was mayor then because this would have been... I don't think so either. Yeah. I want to say 1967 or maybe 68 when Freddie Gonzalez was killed in Vietnam. Yeah. But, I, think, but, I think you're but anyway, right. That, that didn't matter because when he saw miscarriage of justice, if he knew about it, he'd try to, he'd try to straighten it out. And I think that's what a lot of people think of your father, you know, being sort of like this person who would fight for the little man. Is there any misconceptions that people might have about your dad? I can't think of anything. I mean, like I said, we never communicated. It was like, I I think when I was a senior in high school, I had about a three or four word conversation. That was it. He said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm not ready for college. I may never be ready for college, so I'm going to go in the military. I said that they had the draft in, and if you're not, if you're not college or you have some kind of draft deferment, they were going to draft you. And I didn't want to, since I was going to go, I want to be the one that chooses where I'm going to go. Do you all think that his legacy is important to remember? But his being, his being the first Hispanic mayor certainly opened the door for others. And, and, and there have been quite a few, I don't, you know, since, I mean, I've lived here in the Austin area longer than I live in Edinburgh. So I don't, I'm, I'm about the only time I ever get any news from the from Edinburgh is that somebody get breaks the law and gets caught. That's about the only time I ever hear anything from Edinburgh. Well, you know, when you talk about doing the right thing, that that is a legacy that can never be outworn. And I, I have I've got I've got a photocopy of a talk that he gave to the McAllen Rotary. I guess I would think early on after being elected mayor. And it had to do with Pan-Americanism. It, it referenced the fact that we have two border cities. There's not a better place in the world to practice internationalism and being a good neighbor than here right on the border. And if we can't do it here, how could we ever expect to do it anywhere else? So, you know, having that sense of justice and that sense of doing the right thing is, again, a legacy that, you know, everybody should be, it should be carried on from from administration to administration and generation to generation, so it should never be outworn. How are each of you continuing his legacy? Are y'all part of politics or do you have some of his stuff and donating it to the museum because we do have some some of his stuff in our collections I'm not involved in, in, in I mean I I have a, I still have a lot of stuff that that I that I'd like to give to the to the museum but I mean aside from that I mean I don't have I'm not involved in anything really what you're doing with the with with the kits you're continuing what dad started so that in that sense, his legacy is going to remain alive forever because you're, you're, you know, he started that a long time ago, and you're continuing that, which is great. Yeah, the bilingual education, correct? What What's the name of the books? 
Well, originally they were called, uh, they were called uh, Spanish Roll and English Roll, and Roll standard for Region 1 literacy lessons. So it was a two-year reading program to teach native Spanish speakers how to read in their native language and build their vocabulary, and also, very importantly, their writing skills. Mm -hmm. So these kids, then the second year, they would begin to learn more about reading in English. And again, all the time, uh, a central part of that program was the reading, I mean, the writing component. It's called the language experience approach. And when they tested these kids in, the, in third grade, for example, and they would test, the test, the control group would be Spanish-speaking kids who had gone through a regular educational program, and then they would see how much, they could, how much those kids could write in English and how much they could write in Spanish versus the kids who were, went through this particular program. The, the kids who went through this program, I mean, the ones who did not go through it barely, barely could write a sentence in Spanish, whereas these kids were very, very, very able to write quite a bit in English and in Spanish. So I've taken those materials and kind of put a new, put a new cover on some of them, adapted them, others, made them more teacher-friendly, and also I'm digitizing quite a bit and hope at some point in the next few years to have a completely online a digital curriculum for teaching Spanish reading. I haven't even touched the English yet. It's all focused on Spanish reading. So uh, that's been occupying quite a bit of my time and energy and resources over the last last few years. And it's, you know, and it's a rewarding activity. Do you know when dad was principal of Lincoln? I mean, how long ago that was? In the 50s? Maybe. At any rate, uh, at Lincoln School, which was on, at that time was the edge of the universe on the east side of Edinburgh, Mexicano town, he talked him into getting a printing press and started printing all sorts of things. And I remember he had some ancient kinds of printing things at the house that I would play with. Uh, later on, he had a print shop here at Edinburgh University Printing and published my grandmother's book, Ranch Life in Hidalgo County, which Robert published, republished, and I'm publishing now as well. So in that respect, I'm carrying on his legacy, still running his, his incorporation, Omnimedia. So final question, is there anything y'all would like to add? Anything in particular that I didn't ask maybe? And you feel like it's important to say? No, I think one of the things that, that uh, when I was, I guess when I was maybe like in the sixth or seventh grade back then, I remember he used to do a lot of traveling and he was always, he'd, he'd always be gone flying here and flying all over the place. And I asked him one day, you know, how it was to do that. And there was a, there was an airline, there was an airline company here in the Valley called Real Airways. And he told me, hey, well, why don't you write them a letter? And, and ask and tell them, hey, you know, that my dad, you know, flies all over the place and it'd be nice if, you know, if younger people could fly. And, and they, they, uh, they sent a letter back saying they were going to, they flew me all over the state for free. Oh, wow. So that was pretty, I, th I thought that was pretty nice. So Stephen got free movie tickets and Dan got free airline tickets and, and, you got, and I got to play baseball. <laughs> That's important. My wife, Valerie, says, in 1993, my father bought, no, yeah, 
brought Edinburgh's Black Cemetery to public attention, and he was there in 2008 when it received a Texas historical marker. He cared about equality and supported the Juneteenth observances. One year, he read a letter he received from the son of Thurgood Marshall after writing to tell him about our observances. So she thought that was, she thought that was very important. Well, thank you so much for stopping by the Museum of South Texas History. And as uh, Stephen mentioned, Robert's uh, book, The um, I can't Ranch Life in Hidalgo County yeah. After 1850. We do have copies of the book for purchase at the museum store. So if anybody's interested, you can definitely yeah. pick that up as well. And we do have his full collection. Well, not his full collection, because um, as uh, Dan mentioned, more items are to come. But we do have his collection, Al Ramita's collection, here at the museum archives. So researchers can definitely stop by and study the life of Al Ramita's. So once again, thank you, Ramita's brothers, for participating. And Thanks um, for inviting us. Yes, yeah, thanks definitely. For, thanks for the invite. This episode was produced and edited by me, Pamela Morales song is Carpe Diem by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more about stories from the Rio Grande and send your questions through the Anchor app. You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande.